0: Let me ask you now to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, to Romans chapter 10. We are continuing our verse-by-verse study of this book, and this morning we are coming back to verses 13 through 17, so Romans 10 verses 13 through 17. And as you are finding your place there in your Bibles, let me mention to you the name of Sheldon Jackson. Sheldon Jackson was born in 1834 in the Mohawk Valley of New York. And he grew up in a godly home where he heard the gospel from a young age, and even as a youth, he determined he wanted to be a missionary. He graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary, which at that time was a solid Christian school training pastors and missionaries for gospel service. And after that, according to one brief biography of his life, he joined thousands trekking to the American West. Most were searching for gold, land, and open skies, Wagon trains were leaving St. Louis daily. The Golden Spike tied east to west in 1866 as the Union Pacific Railway opened. Boom towns arose. Cowboys and mining camps, rowdy saloons and gunfighters filled the frontier. And Jackson was everywhere, searching for souls with the fervor of a prairie fire he once organized 7 churches in 15 days close quote now that last sentence is probably a reference to the summer of 1869 so sometimes we hear people talk about the summer of 69 well this was the summer of 1869 and it was an important summer in sheldon jackson's life that was the year that the transcontinental railroad was finished And that summer, Jackson served as a traveling missionary going from train station to train station all across the United States as it existed at that time, preaching the gospel to everyone who would come and hear. A friend of his famously said of him, he would not hesitate if he thought he could save an old hardened sinner to mount a locomotive And let the gospel message fly at a group by the wayside while traveling at a speed of 40 miles an hour. Jackson was a Presbyterian. And for several years he served as the Presbyterian missions superintendent for much of the western United States. It was he who was instrumental in sending and supporting missionaries in places like Wyoming and Montana and Utah and Arizona and New Mexico though the last three were not even states at that time. He was based in Denver, Colorado, and under his leadership, many churches were founded and church buildings constructed there in Colorado. And then in 1867, Seward's Folly took place. U.S. Secretary of State William H. Seward arranged for the United States to purchase this territory from Russia called Alaska. Alaska. And while others were mocking this deal, uh, the newspapers mocked the deal. They, they called Alaska nothing but a polar bear's garden, and they thought it was a joke, a terrible deal for the U.S. In reality, America paid two cents per acre uh, for Alaska. But while others were mocking the deal, Sheldon Jackson saw this as a great opportunity to take the gospel to yet another place where peoples existed who had never heard the name of Jesus quoting again. When the United States purchased Alaska, Jackson headed there at once, and the north soon became his passion. He explored the dangerous, uncharted, fog-hidden coast of the Bering Sea and the Arctic Ocean. He established schools for the young, and he placed missionaries in the various hamlets. He evangelized, he established churches, and he brought Bibles to the Eskimos. Uh, Interestingly, it was on a trip to Siberia that Jackson saw how one of those native Russian groups had domesticated reindeer and were using reindeer for travel and for food and for clothing. And so it was he who arranged to have 1,300 reindeer brought to the Eskimos in Alaska. And it's because of him that you can now find reindeer in Alaska today. In all, Sheldon Jackson gave over 50 years of missionary service to the Western United States and Alaska. We're told that in his lifetime, he traveled more than a million miles, and he personally oversaw the establishment of 886 churches. He died just short of his 75th birthday in Asheville, North Carolina. And despite his old age, even up to just before his death, he was still in the midst of planning yet another trip, this one to Denver, Colorado, to attend the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church and to check in on some of those churches he had helped to start. So what might we say about someone like Sheldon Jackson? What might we say about this man who preached the good news to people who had never heard it, a man who was consumed with a zeal, For the lost to be saved. Well, according to our passage this morning, one thing we might say about Sheldon Jackson is this. He had beautiful feet. He had beautiful feet. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Let's look at our passage. Our passage is Romans 10, beginning in verse 13. Remember, this is the very word of God. Romans 10, verse 13. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Now last Sunday, we focused on verses 14 and 15, and the chain that Paul gives us, explaining how salvation comes to people. Uh, Each link of the chain is dependent on the links that come before it. And we summed up the chain with these five words. Calling, believing, hearing, preaching, and sending. Or, reverse the order to have them in the way that they actually happen. Sending, preaching, hearing, believing, calling. Salvation, according to Paul, who was quoting Joel, is now open to the world. But it is only when people hear the gospel and believe it that they will call out on Christ for salvation. And in order for people to hear, there must be someone preaching. And in order for someone to be preaching, preachers must be sent. And so last Sunday, we hit hard on the sending part, what it looks like to be a sender. This morning, we're going to look at the rest of the chain and especially what it looks like to be those who preach. Without a doubt, people can hear the gospel, believe the gospel, call out on Christ through good books where the gospel is presented to them, through songs where the gospel message is presented to them, through a casual conversation with a friend who is a believer. But Paul is especially thinking here about the gospel going out to the nations. Paul was especially thinking in Romans 10 about what we today call missionaries and what the New Testament calls evangelists. And these evangelists were men sent out by local churches to take the gospel to peoples who had never heard it. And so, looking at these verses, we can learn several truths about the cause of missions. And in particular, I want us to note the task of missionaries, the aim of missionaries, and the nobility of missionaries. So, first, the task of missionaries. And we see this at the end of verse 14. The end of verse 14, do you see it? How are they to hear without someone preaching? This is what people need in order to be saved. The gospel must be communicated. The gospel must be preached. Yes, it is wonderful when medical workers go to the weakest and the poorest of this world and provide medical care. It is a glorious thing when well-run orphanages are established for children who need them. The opening up of new schools in places where education has been lacking, that is excellent. Building homes, constructing wells, teaching modern farming techniques, these are all good deeds. But none of those are the primary task of a missionary. These things may accompany the primary task of a missionary, These things may very well be the way the missionary gets in the front door. These these things may provide an opening for him to preach the gospel. But at the end of the day, the task of a missionary is to preach the gospel. No one is made right with God through food or medicine or general education. Those things are wonderful. Let's let's have hearts which care more and lives which are more invested in those kinds of things. But the gospel must have priority because it is the gospel message alone which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Preaching is the missionary task. The word Paul uses here for preaching is the Greek word keresantos. So everybody say keresantos. Well done, well done. It's a form of the word caruso, which literally means messenger or herald. In ancient days, a caruso was one who came into a town and delivered a proclamation on behalf of the governor or even on behalf of the emperor. So the the townsfolk would gather around the herald, around the preacher, around the caruso, and he would boldly and clearly and solemnly communicate the decree of the king. Now, if that's the missionary task, you can see that this has many implications for those who would preach the gospel. Be they missionaries, be they pastors... Be they chaplains. And so let me mention just three implications of this word for the preacher of the gospel. Number one, the preacher of the gospel must preach with authority. The Caruso, the herald, the preacher represents the one who sent him. So if the preacher is bringing a message from God himself, he must preach that message with the authority of God. Remember the difference between the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees? Remember what Matthew tells us after summarizing for us that sermon that Jesus delivered on the mountain? Matthew says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Martin Lloyd-Jones says any study of church history and particularly any study of the great periods of revival or of reawakening demonstrates above everything else just this one fact that the Christian church during all such periods has spoken with authority. The great characteristic of all revivals has been the authority of the preacher. There seemed to be something new Extra and irresistible in what he declared on behalf of God. If the preacher isn't sure of the message he preaches, you can assure that there will be no revival or awakening amongst the hearers. Dr. Moeller says this, The preacher dares to speak on behalf of God. He stands in the pulpit as a steward of the mysteries of God, and he declares the truths of God's word, proclaims the power of that word, and applies that word to life. This is an admittedly audacious act. And no one should ever contemplate such an endeavor without absolute confidence in a divine call to preach and in the unblemished authority of the Scriptures. Why can I stand before you today and preach with authority? Why can missionaries go into foreign lands and declare, Thus saith the Lord? It is because the authority of the preacher is not his own. It is the authority of the very Word of God. And as long as the preacher declares the truths that are here... And only as long as the preacher is declaring the truths that are here, there is a divine authority underneath everything he says. And those who disregard the preaching of the word disregard God himself. Must preach with authority. But second, the preacher of the gospel must preach with gravity. With gravity. The herald Comes to the town representing the king. If the herald acts like a clown, if the preacher is full of silliness and foolishness, that reflects on the king he represents. And it reflects on the seriousness of the message that he is delivering. So when a preacher delivers God's word, it is paramount that he do so with gravity, with reverence for the word that he is delivering. To quote Dr. Moler again, he says, the preacher must demonstrate reverence for God's word by dealing truthfully and responsibly with the text. He must not be flippant or casual and much less dismissive or disrespectful of this we can be certain no congregation will revere the bible more than their preacher does so i wonder as you hear the word of god preached each sunday is there a sense of reverence in your heart for god's word do you receive each sermon as a message being delivered to you that ultimately comes from God Himself. And whoever's standing here is just the messenger. The messenger has no authority in and of himself. The messenger stands before you as a fellow sinner, as a fallen human being. And if I'm not delivering the message found here, if Pastor Merle isn't delivering the message found here, then we don't need to be pastors. And you take care of that, if that happens. But missionaries and preachers are called to deliver God's message. And therefore, each sermon is to be received with us, received by us, with earnestness and attentiveness and seriousness. When a herald comes into the town and delivers a message from the king of all the land... You shouldn't go away saying, wow, that herald did a really good job communicating the message. Or, hmm, I wish the herald would have told more stories. No, we should come away thinking about the message that was given, what the king had to say and what it now means for us, the implications of it for, for us in our community. What must we now believe? What must we now obey? The king has spoken to us. How should we now respond? When we leave thinking about those kinds of questions, we reveal that we have a real reverence and a sense of gravity about the word of God being given to us. Number three, based on this word Caruso and that the preacher is to be a herald of God's word, we can say that the preacher of the gospel must not add or take away at all from the message. The preacher of God's word must not add or take away from the message. It is a dangerous thing for a messenger of the king to tamper with the message, to distort the message to soften the message, to change the message in any way. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church. Beware the preacher who would come to you with any message from that, which is, that is different from the message that is found here in the pages of this book. Missionaries and preachers are a gift of Christ. And missionaries and preachers are meant to help us better understand, better apply the message of God. But we must be Bereans, searching the scriptures for ourselves, asking, is this true? Testing what we hear from this pulpit according to this book so that we never be misled. For as 2 Peter says, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Don't be exploited with false words. Last week I got one of those strange things in the mail. A prayer blanket in the mail that apparently it said this ministry had prayed over it, and then if I would send a check to that ministry I could expect certain blessings. It included a testimony of people talking about how God had given them a new car and this kind of stuff because they used their prayer blanket and send in cash to the ministry. That's called being exploited with false words. Test what you hear. The false messenger, the herald that tampers with God's word in order to serve his own selfish ends, that teacher will have hell to pay. Because it is better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and for you to be thrown into the depths of the sea than for you to cause one of Christ's little ones to stumble. I would not want to be a prosperity gospel preacher on the day of judgment. And I would not want to be a self-esteem, power-of-positive-thinking preacher on the day of judgment. And every mainstream denomination preacher who has fallen in line with our modern culture and is preaching a false gospel of pluralism, encouraging congregations to treat the Bible as just a storybook, preaching the message of, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, that preacher is going to find out he or she is not okay on the last day. preacher must not add to or take away from God's message. Oh, and what a day of joy it will be for the faithful messenger on the last day. To stand before Christ, the lover of our souls, the captain of our salvation, and to hear Christ say to that missionary, to that preacher, to that chaplain, well done, my good and faithful servant. There can be no greater prize, no greater reward, no greater happiness than that. Mount Herman, I want to be found faithful as a messenger of Jesus Christ. Pray for me. Pray for Pastor Merle. Pray for your Sunday school teachers. Pray for every one of us who has opportunity to teach. That we will be faithful. Well, this passage not only explains the task of missionaries, it also tells us the aim of missionaries. Certainly the chief aim is to be found faithful before God. But the more direct aim of missionaries, humanly speaking, is that people will hear the gospel message, believe the gospel message, and call out on Christ to save their souls. Isn't that what we see right there in verse 14? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? So the preacher preaches that they may hear. And he hopes that they will hear that they may believe. And he hopes that they will believe in order that they will call out on Christ. That is the aim. The salvation of souls. This gives us even more implications for those who would be missionaries or preach the gospel. And since we already started a list, we're going to keep going with number four. So number four... The preacher of the gospel must preach with clarity. With clarity. If the goal is that they will hear and believe, there must be clarity. When Romans 10 speaks of hearing, it doesn't simply mean hearing words, it means hearing with understanding. It means that the preacher delivers the message in such a way that the people he is speaking to can understand what is being communicated. People cannot believe and respond to words that they don't understand. So what does that mean? It means for many missionaries that they first have to go learn the language of the people they are going to preach to. Think of how many missionaries, even today, are in the midst of years of language study. As well as years of working with interpreters to help them preach the gospel to people in a language that is not yet their own. This very day, this Sunday afternoon, here in the United States, there will be people, many of them around Southeastern, who will be studying uh, nouns and verbs in their dorm rooms, participles and conjunctions. They will be learning to speak another language for one purpose that they can preach the gospel in a way that the people they are going to can hear it and understand it. Their love for the lost will motivate their study of grammar. And we need motivation if we're going to study grammar, don't we? (laughs) Praise God for those missionaries who give up so much of their lives to learning how to communicate the gospel clearly to people in a foreign language. But even once the language is known, it is necessary for the truths of God to be preached in a clear way. God's preachers are not to be known for their vagueness. God's preachers are not to be known for speaking ambiguously. Uh, some people have this gift of being able to use lots and lots of words while saying very little. That should never be a preacher of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and we are to preach it in a way that people can understand. Number five, the preacher of the gospel must preach with persuasiveness. The preacher of the gospel must preach with persuasiveness. Now hear me clearly here. The message that the king has given to his messengers to declare is a message that calls for a response The gospel message is a persuasive message. It is Jesus saying, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give rest for your souls. The gospel message is a message meant to lead people to a certain action. Trust and obey is the message that the preacher brings. This means that the preacher can't preach in a formal way, in which he just delivers a lecture and then packs up his things and goes home. It must be evident that he cares about the people to whom he is preaching. The hearers must be able to know that that missionary or that preacher cares for me. There is love there. The heralds of King Jesus do not try to persuade people through deception or flattery or emotional manipulation Those things are not befitting a preacher of King Jesus. Rather, we try and persuade people through reasoning with them truthfully and by preaching to them with love. We must deliver the message with love because that's what's in the heart of the King. The King has sent us because of His love for us. The king has sent these messengers because of his love to deliver a message of love. And that means the gospel message cannot be preached in any other way. Listen to Paul. Remind the Thessalonians of how he and his fellow laborers preached to them. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal, notice he uses that word to talk about the preaching of the gospel, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves, because you had become very dear to us. This is how it was with the apostles. The people they preached to, they became dear to them. He says, I was ready to give you not only the gospel, but my very life for your sake. This is how every preacher and missionary should speak to those to whom they deliver God's word. They should be able to say, these people are dear to me. And I am ready to give them not only the gospel, but if God requires it, my very life for their sake. Finally, if the aim of the missionary is for people to hear, believe, and call out on Christ, then it is evident that the preacher of the gospel must preach with prayerfulness. With prayerfulness. Because only God can make the gospel message effective. When preaching to those who are lost, the missionary is like Ezekiel preaching to that valley of dry bones. Only the Spirit of God can make those dry bones live. And even after people are converted and saved, it is still the Spirit of God that causes Christians to understand, Christians to grow in their faith, Christians to grow in love, Christians to obey God's Word. This is why when Acts 6 describes the duties of pastors, through those first pastors of the church in Jerusalem, the apostles, it says that pastors have two chief duties, to give themselves to the Word and to prayer. Actually, it says prayer first. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how clearly the preacher communicates, how much love he has in his heart, how much he struggles to preach with authority and clarity and faithfulness. It is only the Spirit of God who can make the Word of God effective to change us and to grow us, to strengthen us and encourage us. And so the preacher must pray as he prepares the message. The preacher must pray as he comes to deliver the message. The preacher must have an attitude in his heart of prayer, even as he preaches, preaching out of weakness, saying, God, I'm going to give it my all, but you must come, you must care for these people, God. You as parents know what it's like when you want to change your children's hearts in some way, and you can't, you can't do it. And so also many pastors feel that. I'm going to do the best I can, God. You come. You do the work. For these I love. And even after the message, the preacher keeps praying that God will cause the seed to find fertile soil and to bear fruit. We're almost done. We've seen the task of missionaries, the aim of missionaries from these verses. We should also note the nobility of missionaries that Paul gives us here. Those of us who are senders should have a great deal of love and thankfulness to God for those He raises up around us to go with the gospel. And Paul quotes Isaiah 52:7: How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It is just my opinion. But I don't think feet are very beautiful. You might. You just stop and you look at a foot. It seems to me that feet are pretty weird looking. Baby feet are cute. I will give you that. I remember when when our boys were little and, you know, you did the little, this little piggy went to the market, this little piggy went home. That's. But then little kid feet become teenage boy feet. And they take their shoes off in the car and the stench fills. I think feet are nasty. Imagine feet in the first century. There was a reason that servants washed people's feet when they came into a house. People wore sandals on dusty and dirty roads. And the roads often weren't just sandy. They were often tainted with animal manure and, and sometimes worse And so feet were really gross, especially if they had been traveling. So what in the world does this verse mean when it says beautiful feet? Why would people in the ancient world call someone's feet beautiful? Well, the verse says that these people with beautiful feet are coming as heralds of good news. I remember hearing Joel Beaky explain this years ago. It made great sense to me. He said in ancient times, the only way that people would receive news was through messengers. And so perhaps on the day of a great battle, residents of a town would have to wait for a messenger to come to tell them whether the battle was lost or won. They would wait for a runner to come to them. And so most towns had a tower or a a high place where someone could go to scan the horizon for a messenger that would be coming. And we're told that in those days they would pay special attention to the messenger's feet. They would look at the gate of the messenger, how he was walking, to see if they could guess what the news would be. If the messenger seemed to be running with joy, if he was running with a sense of liberty, word would spread throughout the town, good news is coming. If the messenger seemed to be more sluggish or slow, with a a sense of sorrow in his gait, word would spread throughout the town, bad news is coming. Imagine loved ones waiting anxiously to hear of how their husband or their father fared in battle. Is he still alive? Was our side victorious? What an encouragement to hear the call from up in the tower. Good news is coming. You can begin to understand how someone might say how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. When Isaiah wrote this verse, I think it particularly applied to that proclamation that would come from King Cyrus of Persia that the Jews who had been in captivity in Babylon were now free to go home. Imagine that. Imagine the messenger that comes to you after decades in exile and tells you that you and your family can now, after 40 years, go home. You might hog that messenger. He's brought you great news. But how much better is the news brought by those raised up by God as pastors and missionaries? Really, could there be a higher calling in this life, a better calling in this world than the calling to take the best news of all to those who've never heard it? Could there be a more privileged and wonderful job to have than the job of delivering the best news in the world to people who desperately need to hear it. God loves sinners so much that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes will never perish but have everlasting life. Oh yes, some will reject the message, but for those who hear the message and believe it, you have served as a midwife (laughs) giving birth to them. In Christ, You have served as a matchmaker, helping bring them to, to Christ, the great bridegroom, the lover of their souls. Christ does not need any preacher. Christ does not need any missionary. But what a joy to be one who participates in the greatest work that he is doing in the world, saving souls. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Could it be that anyone in this room is being called by God to be a preacher of the gospel? Could it be that God is already beginning to put it in the heart of someone here, a desire to be a missionary, to go to places where Christ has not yet been named, a place where the gospel is not readily found? Or maybe God is raising up a pastor among us preaching the gospel to God's people in a local church setting. I can testify to you, it is one of the greatest jobs in the world. I pray that God would raise up thousands more for a world full of people that need to be saved. Mount Hermon, let us pray for more preachers who speak with authority, with gravity, and without tampering with God's message. Let us pray for more preachers who will speak clearly and lovingly and prayerfully. And let us pray that Christ would build his church. Amen.